This has never happened. It's happened with sermons before where I woke up Saturday morning where I was like just not feeling it. And I felt like, oh, there's, a, there's another message that, message that God has. I've had that. But in the whole entire series where I went through all that, oh, this has never happened before. But when I was sitting down to write the message, I just couldn't shake that this is not the right message for right now. For whatever reason. I don't know why. And maybe after the fact we'll know. But late, late at the end of this week, God kind of flipped the script as far as what the series and what we're going to focus on in church is going to be for the next few weeks. So we are starting a brand new series, yes, but it is not called To the Colossians, which it was supposed to be. We were going to do kind of another Bible study series where we just work through the book of Colossians, you know, chapter one, chapter two, and get through it and kind of really dig deep. And that's what I was really excited about, but that's not it. But we are starting a brand new series. This series is called Last Week. Last week. And what we're going to do is something similar to that, not quite a whole book, but we're going to spend the next five weeks digging into the last week that Jesus lived on this earth. That last week before his death and resurrection. We're going to start from the beginning and we're just going to work through the next seven days to see and understand who Jesus was and, and what he conveyed and what he taught in the last week of his life. But if you look at the scriptures, this is actually kind of how the, uh, the original authors of the Gospels, I think, wanted it. Because if you look at the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice something. That when they get to the last week of Jesus' life, they slow down incredibly. There's an incredible slowdown of narrative and storytelling that before wasn't there. So let me give you an example. This is kind of, what, this is kind of how it looks like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've probably never thought about this. But in Matthew... In Matthew, he spends, can you get on the screen? In Matthew, he spends 20 chapters to cover 30 years and then eight chapters to cover the last week of Jesus' life. In Mark, he spends 10 chapters for three years and then six chapters just on the last week of Jesus' life. Then in Luke, then in Luke, you have 19 chapters for the first 30 years of Jesus' life Five chapters for the last week. And John, this is the crazy one. Eleven chapters for, the, for three years of his ministry. And then nine chapters. Almost the exact, almost the same amount, number of chapters on just the last week that Jesus had on this earth. So it's almost as if the writers of the Gospels were saying, this stuff is really, really good. This stuff is really important. But they slowed down incredibly to make a point. What does it mean? What does it mean when you slow down, when you, see, when you go into slow motion? Right? In, this, in this story, we slow down to make a point. That what happens now is very, very important. You see what I did there? You see what I did there? That's exactly what the gospel writers were doing. They speed through Jesus' life, and they get a lot of good stuff. But the last week, they're like, hey, we got to slow it down, and we got to pay attention. That's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to spend five weeks just on the last week of Jesus. Now, the other thing that you need to know about this sermon series, um, and I want to kind of put it out there from the very beginning. Usually when the pastoral team, uh, Pastor Jonathan and I, we come together, prepare serious sermons, we, we pray and we ask God for the message, but we also think about who's the audience? Like, who are we speaking to? Who's gonna, who is this really directed towards? Who's gonna gain the most benefit if they really like connect with the message series? But this series, I will tell you, 
Um, there's no audience. I have no audience in mind. You are not in my mind when I wrote this. You weren't there. I was not thinking about you. I was not thinking about what you're going through. I was not thinking about who can gain the benefit or a blessing from the series. That's actually not, and, and usually I do, and that's kind of my natural thing. But for this series, I have only one single person who is in my audience, and that's Jesus. In my mind, this series, I'm trying to honor who he is by sharing his story with you. That's the goal. So I don't know if there's going to be really practical lessons for you to take away. I don't know if this is going to change your life. I just want us to get closer to Jesus and look at his story. And I think I just want to make him proud of the way I share the story of his last week. That's my mindset for the next five weeks. And if you gain a blessing, awesome. But I just think that if we, the nearer to Jesus we can get, the better it will be for all of us. So that's what we're doing. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. And we'll get into the very first thing that happened at the beginning of Jesus' last week on earth. Father in heaven, thank you, God, for your direction and for your guidance. You have a word for us. I don't know what it is. But I pray, God, that in everything, you would be lifted up, especially now, today, in this sermon, that we would see you and see how amazing you are. And we claim that promise, if you, the Son of Man, be lifted up, you will draw all men and women to him. God, we ask, God, that you would move in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that happens at the beginning of Jesus' life is what is called the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. That's kind of the official name of, of, of what happens at the very beginning of Jesus' life. So the story is, is that Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital. It's the center of everything. It's where all that's happening, right? The political center is there, but also the religious center is there. The temple is there. And every year at the Passover, thousands and thousands and thousands of people would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. If you're not familiar with the Passover, the Passover was the biggest holiday or biggest day of the year for the Jews. It was kind of like their Independence Day when they had freedom from Egypt as slaves and God did his thing with the, the plagues and all that kind of stuff and he freed them. And so it's, it's been in their history for like thousands of years that this is the most important thing and it's the Passover they celebrate. Everyone comes around to celebrate in the city and it's Passover time. And Jesus is also going into the city. And this moment that we're going to talk about, it happens as he's, he's not even in Jerusalem yet, but he's entering into Jerusalem and some crazy, crazy stuff happens. I'm going to read a little bit about it from John chapter 12. John 12 says, John 12 says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, the Passover festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So Jesus is entering into town, and then people go nuts. People go crazy. They, like, they start cheering and gathering outside. To, to, they're waiting for Jesus. They want to see him. And this huge, huge mass, huge, huge, large crowd of people are gathering. And they're so excited. And it's like, why? We don't really know. And we're going to discover why they were so excited in this moment. Now, Jesus is fully aware of his notoriety and his fame, right? It's not going to his head, but he knows people know him. He knows what people think about him. He knows how people are going to react. And Jesus is very strategic and intentional about everything he does. 
And this is so cool, right? So what happens is Matthew 21 gives us a little insight into what happened before he entered. Matthew 21 verses 1 and 2 says, As they approached Jerusalem, this is now on the disciples' side. The story read was like the people's side. This is disciples and Jesus' side. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Next verse, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. So odd kind of a thing going on here. Before Jesus enters, he sends his disciples on a donkey jacking mission, you know. Go steal a donkey for me. But it's not really stealing because they're like going to give it away. But he sends his disciples to go get a donkey and her colt, so like the baby donkey and the mama donkey or the daddy donkey, bring them to me. Odd, odd request. And his disciples go do it. And he brings it to him, and he rides on this donkey, which is like silly, right? Like donkeys are not cool. Why not a stallion, Jesus, right? Like why a donkey of all animals? But Jesus was very aware of a very specific prophecy. And this is the prophecy, and, and Matthew kind of explains it a little bit more. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Say to, da to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is kind of odd. Jesus knows the prophecy, so he sends his disciples to get the animal that's part of the prophecy so he could sit on the prophecy, so he could, or so sit on the donkey so he can fulfill the prophecy. This, for, for, to any of you guys, does that seem kind of weird? Like, it's kind of an odd thing. Because I think most of us think that prophecies should probably be fulfilled, like, naturally, kind of organically, right? Like, it's, it's kind of weird if you know the prophecy, and then you order your life around it and make the decision so that you can fit the prophecy. That seems kind of disingenuous. It seems kind of like you're kind of gaming the system. It seems like you're kind of manipulating things. Like maybe you're not actually the one, but you know what the one is supposed to do, so you like do the things that the one is supposed to do so people would believe that. It's kind of odd. We, we think that it should happen kind of like as a, as a happy accident, you know, like Jesus just did the things and like, oh, it turns out there's a prophecy about that. But in this sense, we see that Jesus was very specific and intentional about doing this. So either the options are why did Jesus do this? Excuse me. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he go out of his way to set up a scene where he would be fulfilling prophecy? Either he's trying to deceive people into thinking he's the Messiah when he's really not, or number two, he did it on purpose and he is sending a message. I think that in this moment, Jesus is sending a message. And it's the most clearest message, the most public message about who he is that he's ever shared with anyone in his entire ministry. What you have to understand about this image of a, of a donkey or a colt and a person riding on it, this was, in ancient Israel, the customary animal that the king would ride as they returned from war. So for some reason, I don't know why, I don't know why God picked a donkey of all animals, but he chose a donkey that, that in their ancient customs, when a king would go out to war and would return back home, he would ride 
a donkey. It was always, no one else, just the king would ride the donkey. So Jesus picks this, and he's sending a message. And in this moment, the most public moment that he's had, like in his entire ministry, like thousands of people are gathering to see him, and he's being so clear about it. <coughs> the message he is sending is this. I am the king. And this was like crazy for the disciples because for the most part of Jesus' ministry, he was very low-key about everything. He would heal people and then he would say, hey, hey, I'm glad that you're walking and everything. That's, that's awesome. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Okay, just keep it, keep it low-key. And, and they obviously wouldn't do that. He would tell people, hey, who, who do you think I am? Like, well, clearly you're the Messiah. He said, you're right, but don't tell anybody. But for the first time, in the most public way ever, Jesus stands before a cloud in a clear, transparent, obvious message to everyone saying, I am the king. Look, I'm riding on the donkey as kings are supposed to. I am the king. And so he enters into this town, setting himself up as the king, making this claim about himself that he is a king. And then there's two really important details happen when the crowd gathers. We read it quickly in John chapter, uh, in Matthew chapter 21. Or this is actually afterwards. It says, a very large crowd, <coughs> excuse me, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. So two details. When the people came out, the first thing they did was they took off their cloaks, their coats, and they spread it on the ground. And then they took some branches and put them on the road. John chapter 12 gives us a little bit more insight into the details of this moment. It says the next day, we read this earlier, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, of all branches, palm branches, and went out to meet him. So there are two key cultural things that a lot of us don't know that makes this, this moment really, really powerful. The laying of cloaks and coats on the ground was kind of like the ancient Israelite version of spreading out the red carpet for someone. It's like rolling out the red carpet, like the Oscars or the, uh, the any kind of award ceremony where, where you spread out the red carpet. And we even have that phrase, when you roll out the red carpet, it means someone extremely important is there. And so you do that in preparation for them. That was kind of their Jewish thing. You put your coats because you knew that the person who would walk there is extremely, extremely important. So they rolled out the red carpet and then they pulled out the palm branches. Now, palm branches, it's really simple. The palm branch, in Israelite symbology and understanding of their culture, palm branches were a symbol for victory. It was a symbol for victory. So when a king would return from battle, they would have palm branches everywhere celebrating the victory of the king. So here's what I want you guys to understand. This moment where everyone is gathering, Jesus is walking, and everyone's following him, cheering and dancing and screaming and shouting and singing. This is not just, it looks like a parade, but it's not just any kind of parade. This is a specific kind of parade. This is a victory parade. This is uh, the parade of celebration after something had been won. Right, like when, when our sports teams win a championship, there's a victory parade. It's like that. It's a victory parade celebrating, but this is a strange, strange victory parade. It's not like the other victory, victory parades in, in, other, in other countries and in the world. Jesus is walking into this moment in victory, declaring to everyone for the first time, I am the king and I am victorious. 
But there are two key differences between Jesus' victory parade and everyone else's victory parade. We want to focus on these two differences. The first is really obvious if you, don't think, if you think about it for a moment. The first difference is that victory parades happen after the battle, don't you think? That's usually when you have a victory parade. You, happen, you have a victory parade after you have won. But Jesus had not won yet. Right? From, from the Jewish political mind, the, the misunderstood mi- mission of Jesus, they thought Jesus was going to come and expel the Romans. But they're entering into this city, Jerusalem. Romans are still in charge. Romans are still oppressing the people. They're not free from the Romans, not at all. Yet he is having a parade that celebrates victory before any battle has won. Now for us who have kind of like theological, spiritual hindsight, we know that that's not what he was about. He was about, it was about the cross, the death, the resurrection. But again, it didn't happen yet. Jesus had not gone to the cross. Death was still in charge. Sin was still there. It's all there still. Yet he is entering into this moment as a conquering hero, a victorious king, but he hasn't fought the real decisive battle yet. Yeah, he's, he's won battles here and there, healing and those kind of things, but the decisive battle, the main battle, the war had not yet been won, yet he enters into this moment in victory. So this is a really, really key difference that you have to understand. The reason why this is so meaningful is because this is so different than what other kings would do when they would win war. He, would, he did this victory parade before he even went into battle. The reason why this is important is because this. Kings had parades to celebrate victory. Jesus did it to proclaim victory. Huge difference. Kings did it to say, look at what we did. We did it. We won. Jesus is walking in saying, I'm going to win. Have confidence in me. I am going to be victorious. No question about it. Isn't that so dope? Jesus is so awesome, man. So he walks in, like as humble and meek as a man he was, he walks in with kingly confidence, telling everyone, that's right, you were right. You thought I was the king, I am the king. And I'm going to win in one week's time. I will deliver us all from death. Crazy, Jesus is proclaiming this victory, and, and I don't want to get too, like, spiritual about it, but, I mean, just think about what that means for you. Or think about what that means for your life and your struggle when Jesus is approaching you saying, I am the king and I will be victorious. What does that mean for you and the things that you're dealing with on a daily basis and the struggles of your life? I want you to fill in that blank. The second difference, and this is kind of my favorite part. As cool as that was, this is my favorite part. The second difference that this, this Jesus' victory parade from other victory parades is who belongs to the parade? Who's in the parade? So I want to ask you this. When you think about Jesus' victory parade, who's there? Or if you think about a king, any normal king after battle, who's in the victory parade? Obviously the king and his homies, his officials and his people and his, and his, uh, his, his uh, leaders and commanders. And then probably you would imagine his soldiers and his army are with them, right? Like, that makes sense, right? When we have victory parades, it's a, it's a, people are shouting and, and it's the players and the coaches and the assistants and all that stuff. So yeah, kings would have these people, these armies celebrating together. But there was one very specific group that they would always have in these ancient victory parades. A long, huge line 
of captives, prisoners of war, and slaves. The conquered people, they would bring the best and the brightest of the conquered people and put them in chains and walk them behind the conquering king. There would be the, 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 the king that they just the, the, the king that just conquered, the king they beat, his officials, there'd be common people that turned to slaves now. And it, what it was essentially was this ancient Jewish flex. It was this ancient custom of flexing before everyone. Look at what we did. Look how great we are. Look how powerful we are. Look at this line of people we beat. They could not beat us. They tried so hard, but they did not stand a chance. These broken and bruised and bloody people, we did that. Look at us. Look how powerful and strong your king, your army is. Now imagine, though, who was in Jesus' parade? Who was in Jesus' parade? Philip Yancey in the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, adds this really, really interesting insight. He says, in Jesus' triumphal entry, the adoring crowd makes up the ragtag procession, the lame, the blind, the children, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. A huge parade of nobodies. A huge parade of people who were pushed out on the edges, the marginalized, the people that everyone had forgotten about, the unlovable, the people that nobody cared about anymore. Those were the people in Jesus' victory parade. And I, can't Im I can imagine that along with these people are those who, whose, whose lives Jesus changed. The people he healed, the people who saved, the, the, the lame who, who were once lame, but now they're in that parade. They're walking, they're running, they're dancing, they're doing cartwheels and backflips. Back you have the deaf and the mute who once could not talk, and they're the ones screaming and shouting, hallelujah, hosanna. They're the ones screaming the loudest. I imagine that that's what that scene was like. This huge mass of people who are not walking in a straight line like soldiers who've returned from victory. They don't have armor on. They're not gleaming in the sunlight. They're wearing their normal clothes, their common clothes with holes and rips and tears, just regular people. And then below that, another group of people who are not just regular people. They're at the bottom of the ladder. And they are in Jesus' parade. And don't get me wrong. This is still a flex by Jesus, but a completely different kind of flex, isn't it? Whereas the kings before would say, look how great we are. Look at these prisoners. Look at all the people we beat. Look at all the people we conquered. Look how wonderful we are. Jesus walks in, in this, with this crowd, with this parade, saying, look at this parade. Look at who's here. Look at how great our God is. Look at what our God did. Look at how powerful our God, my Father, is. Just look. Look at these people. And in this moment, everyone else would be scratching their heads, thinking this is the weirdest sight that I've ever seen. What kind of parade is this? See, the question on people's mind, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, is what kind of king is Jesus really? What kind of kingdom is Jesus going to build? If he's the king, we got to know that what he's going to do is going to be good and best for Israel. What kind of kingdom is he going to build? This moment of this triumphal entry 
is an answer to that question. He says, just look at this. This is the kind of king that I am. And this right here, this is the kind of kingdom that I'm building. This happened on the very first day of Jesus' last week of life. And as I think upon the image, I don't know about you guys, but I was just so moved by like this, how, how amazing he is, but how different he is, how special he is, and how worthy of my, of my devotion, and I think also of your devotion that he is. He's, he was building a completely different kind of kingdom because he, he's a completely different kind of king. And with that message, with that image, with that picture he was sending to everyone, I am a king who proclaims victory before I've even gone to battle. I am one you can trust in. I am one you can place your confidence in. I am one, I got you. And you do not have to fear when I am the king. You do not have to worry when I am the king. I am the king and I will take care of my people. That's the kind of king I am. I am confident because I am the son of God. But also I am a king who does not destroy I am a king who does not kill. I am a king who breaks people. I am a king who invites. I am a king who restores. I am a king who heals. And I am a king who renews. And in that parade, it was also an invitation to everyone watching around. Would you be willing to make me your king? This is what I'm about. You are wondering, this is what it is. Will you make me your king? Now, as we close, I just want you to think about what could happen in our lives if we fully submitted to him and said, Jesus, you are my king. King Jesus, you have the throne of my life. I'm going to get off that throne. I've sat on it too long. My life is the way it is because I've been on the throne. I want to make you king of my life. I want to allow you to rule in my life. Just take a moment to think about how things would be different. How, how different your life would be, how different your interactions would be, how different your heart would be, how different your mind would be, how much more peace you might have in your life. This picture of Jesus entering into Jerusalem as the conquering king, but this king who changes lives, it's an invitation to you as well. Hey, make me your king. Don't wait. Choose me. Choose me to rule over your life. You can have confidence in me. You can trust in me. And I have only the deepest good in store for you. That's how Jesus started his last week. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, I'm so grateful, Father, at, at how you were willing to share with us who you are. The so, all the many facets of who you are. And we still can't really grasp it, but as we look at the accounts and your story, God, we see that you are far more than anyone could have ever dreamed, Lord. And God, we, we see this picture of you today as this conquering king. 
this king who would conquer sin and death, but also this king who would conquer the pain of people's lives, the shame of people's lives, the guilt in their lives, the infirmity and diseases that plague them, Father. You were a God who was a conquering king, but you came down to that level to just help the individual, help the marginalized people, Lord. That's the kind of person you are, and it just blows my mind. I'm just so thankful that we can know about it. And God, I don't know what you're going to do through this message series, but I believe there's a reason why you led us on this path. And Father, I just pray, God, that in this moment we would just be drawn near to you. That's all I care about, that we would be drawn near to who you are. And Father, you will do what only you can do in that moment. So I pray, Father, for my friends, my family, my brothers and sisters in this room, that we would draw near to you in this moment, invite you into our lives, and invite you to be our king. In your name we pray. Amen.